As we begin this morning, let's pray. Lord, speak. Speak your words clearly, convictingly to us now, Lord. We have come to hear from you. So speak, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we start this morning, we're going to be in the book of Colossians, but before we get there, I want you to think about someone you love. Maybe it's a child or a spouse, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's a co-worker, a friend, or maybe it's even you that you need to place yourself in, in this analogy or this story this morning. But I want you to think about that person that is significant to you, and I want you to think about what do you hope for them? What do you wish for them? Maybe, maybe you think about it this way. What do you, what do you pray for them? Right? I, most of us have these, these people in our lives that we pray for and hope for and wish for, and when we think about it, I think that they can fall into three buckets of what we hope for, what we wish for, and what we pray for them. The first is success. I want success for you. I, I want you to be successful and excel. Some of the other ones we pray for is happiness. I want whatever sadness is holding you down, whatever is depressing you, whatever is burdening you, I want that to be gone. I want you to be happy. I want them to be happy. The third is health. I want them to be healed. I want them to be free from any pains, any problems, any difficulties. I think about that with Cooper in my life and my son. He's going to be sixth this, I guess, in May. What do I pray for him or long for him or hope for him? I, I hope that he is happy, that he has a good life, that he has lots of friends, and that he loves life. I want him to be successful, whether that's by going to college or finding a trade and jumping into industry. I want him to be one of the best at whatever he chooses to do. I want him to be successful, to earn well, to be comfortable, to be happy. I want him to be healthy. I hate that he has a peanut allergy, and we've prayed that, God, will you take that from him? But I also think about other ways of being healthy and going, you know, God, will you protect him from any physical pain or any mental illness that may infect him? And those are the buckets that I pray. All of my hopes and dreams and wishes often stay in those buckets. But Carlin, ever since Cooper was born, has always challenged me in this because While I always want him to be successful or happy or healthy, she keeps reminding me, but Jordan, the main thing we want is for him to know Jesus and to follow him. The main things that we want is him to understand the salvation. Yes, health, yes, happiness, yes, success would be great, but we've got to order these things correctly. And then she'll even say, before all these things for him, I want him to be a good person to those around him. All of my prayers and wishes and hopes center on him excelling. And she's challenging me, the person who talks about salvation every single week, to focus on his salvation matters more. How he treats others matters more. I tell you that because we're looking at how Paul is praying for the church in Colossians. And see, this church of Colossae that he's never visited, that he's never really met these people, that he's only heard reports of, he he started last week thanking God for all that has happened in them 
and through them, but now he is going to pray for them. And he is, he is going to be praying, and, and if I was Paul, I would have probably written, well, I, I pray that your congregation grows, that you, you outgrow the room you're meeting in, that you have to have moved to two services. That's what I'm praying for you, Church of, in Colossae. I'm praying that your kids' ministry and youth ministry and men's ministry and women's ministry thrive, that you're seeing salvations and baptisms and all of these things. Or maybe Paul thinks, well, I'm in prison. I don't want them to experience that. So he would pray, hey, I'm praying that you will be safe and that persecution won't come on you and that you won't experience these trials that I've walked through. You would think that's how Paul would write, but instead his prayer is something very different. It says this, Colossians chapter 1, we're in verse 9. Feel free to use your Bible, to use your phone, to use the screens. All of those are um, ways to enjoy God's Word. I read out of the ESV every week, but any translation typically works. Um, Be careful saying any. Most translations work um, pretty well. Verse 9 of Colossians 1, it says this, And so from the day we heard... We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the what he is praying for, that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. Why does he pray for that? So you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And how is all that happening Because may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So let's jump back to verse 9 as we embark on those few verses today. Paul is saying, this is what I pray for you, that your knowledge may grow and your understanding of God's will may grow. But before we jump into what he is praying, I want you to see how he is praying. We have not ceased to pray, and then it says asking. Honestly, he could have just said, we have not ceased to pray for you to to grow in your knowledge. But this double use of praying and asking and not ceasing is bringing out this idea of pleading and begging that Paul is doing as he prays for the church in Colossae. It's amazing to hear this man is praying for them. We see it in the Psalms all the time, them praying to God that way. But how many times would we characterize our prayers to God as pleading and begging and desperately wanting him to work? Paul is pleading and petitioning for God to work in Colossae now as he did then. He has already given thanks for what God has done. Now he is saying, God, continue to do this. It's it's very much in line with how Paul writes in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul is saying, God, you have already worked in amazing ways. Now I'm asking, pleading, begging you to keep working. And I see three categories in which today Paul's prayer is praying for the people. First, Paul is praying that they will know God and that know his will. Second, that they will live it out. We'll find that in verse 10. And third, 
that they will remember what God has done. And so let's start with the knowing God. Paul is praying that they will grow, they will be growing in their knowing of the will of God. That's hard to say, but it kind of rhymes, so you may catch it. Who knows? He's praying for them to be growing in knowing the will of God. Now, knowing God is an evolving, deepening, growing understanding. Think about it this way. I think back to the eras of my life. And I go to when I was a kid, when I would have been in little church over there across the sidewalk. I would have known about God, right? God created the world, that Jesus loves me and died for me, like that he sent his son. I would know those facts. But then as a teenager, I began to meet God. My need of a savior began to grow. I began to, to understand God in a bigger and a clearer way. As a college student, I came to really know God. I came to understand his grace and mercy, that I do not earn it or deserve it, but that he freely gives it to me. I grew in my understanding of God, my knowing of God. As a young adult, I really had to put into practice this following of God, right? I started navigating real life and marriage and purchasing a home and moving cities and all of these things, I started having to see that, wait, God is orchestrating things that I could not have scripted. As we look and see how we were taken care of at each step along the way, I see and understand God in bigger and better ways. And now as a father and a pastor, I'm, I'm knowing him through trusting him. Trusting him because I realize my limitations, but I also understand his infiniteness. And so I'm leaning into this. The same exercise could be done to understanding God's will in your life. It grows over the eras of your life, over the decades, over the years. You begin to understand him deeper. You begin to see him clearer. You understand his goodness and his majesty and his love and his grace and his forgiveness more and more as you need more forgiveness, as you need more love, as you need more grace, and your, your pit deepens and deepens and you realize how good he is. And I'm always still learning. Sunday afternoon last week, Cooper was doing a performance. He loves to do performances. He had a crown on, and we asked him what he was doing. He said, well, I'm Jesus. I said, okay, very cool. And he said, I said, why do you have the crown on? Well, Jesus is a king, Dad. Okay, cool. And he said, but Jesus is a different king. He's not a king with a castle. And I was like, yeah, I guess not, right? Like, that makes sense. Like, we could get into eschatology and all that. We didn't in that moment, all right? Uh, but he, he says, he's not like a normal king. He doesn't have a castle. For every king Cooper knows, he sits in a stone-built castle, right? And he barks orders. Cooper brought that up, too. He said, and Jesus isn't a bossy king that tells everybody what to do and everybody's afraid of. He's a good king. I, we grow in our understanding all the time in random, simple moments. And so Paul's prayer is that they're growing in knowing God and knowing his will for their lives. And so we've got to talk about that idea. Because the will of God is this idea shrouded in mystery, and it feels like we need Nicolas Cage sent on a mission to figure it out for us, right? Right? 
like there's something in the Declaration of Independence and there's something in this Bible, if you use this sort of light, he'll figure it out for us, right? But the mystery, I mean, the, the will of God is not cryptic or secretive. It shouldn't be hard to figure out. See, maybe here's a better example. Sometimes, very rarely, maybe not rarely, Carlin will say, hey, I'm hungry, all right? Usually about 4.30 every day. I'm hungry. All right, what do you want to eat? I don't know. <laughs> so I go on this journey of trying to figure out what she doesn't even know she wants. Would you like tacos? No, we had tacos the other night, okay. Would you like pizza? I'm always up for pizza. No, that's so heavy and greasy. What about spaghetti? Oh, well, tomatoes upset my stomach. Okay, well, I've got some chicken. We could make this. Well, I really don't want that. That doesn't sound good. Eventually, we just work down. We work all the no's until we get to Chewy's, and Chewy's is always a yes. All right, give her a creamy jalapeno dip, and she's had a good evening. But, but sometimes she doesn't even know what she wants. She just knows she wants something. And I'm afraid that we consider the idea of the will of God as some mystery that we have to work through all of these things. And it's a high stakes game because we've got to figure it out. Because if we don't know the will of God for our life, we're going to ruin our life. And that we have this constant journey of coming to forks in the road and God is just testing us. Will you go to the right one or the left one? Will you go to the correct one or the wrong one? And this will of God just feels like this constant game of having to make choices so that we can honor God and stay in his will. And if we don't, we've ruined our life and run into a dead end. But that's not the will of God, friends. The will of God is not caught up so much in these choices of going right or going left, of taking that job or of staying in your current job. Sure, there are times God calls us to certain things, but there's other times that I think he gives us choices. What major do you want to major in? What house do you want to live in? Maybe you're going, Jordan, that seems a little broad in this freedom we're giving us. I believe God does give us freedom to then honor him in whatever choice we make. Because where do you stop the game of he has decided it? Do you, do you stop it at a home that you choose to live in? A job that you choose to take? A person you choose to marry? You know, I mean, boy, can it get even more trivial. When you go to Chipotle, chicken or pork, is there a right or wrong answer? Some of you would say there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer, but... Does it stop with, should I get cheese or not? Should I drink water or Diet Coke today? Where, where do we stop in this linear game of I have to stay on the will of God or else I've ruined my life? And I'm afraid that's how we live, friends. We live in fear of every choice messing it up. We're playing this high-risk game of Russian roulette, trying to figure out the will of God and hoping we get it right. But no, he is calling us to love him, to love our neighbor, to live in a manner that abides with him, that honors him, that pleases him, and that focuses on him. And so guess what? We can do that in this office and in that office, in this house and in that house. It can be done in all of these places. It's how we live more than what we've chosen. So Paul says, I hope you grow in your knowledge of God's will. Why? So you may walk, verse 10, in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, that living pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. One commentator said it very well. He said this, right knowledge leads to right behavior. 
as you grow in your knowledge of God, it can lead you to living more rightly. It's not necessary that you're going to live rightly. Sure, there's a lot of things I know are the good things, and I still don't do it. At no point is drinking a Coca-Cola the better choice than water. Okay? But we're still going to choose it. Paul is saying, I, I, I pray that you know God, but now I'm praying also that you will do the will of God. That you will walk worthy. Paul loves that idea of walking. It's really just your life. That, that you will just live in a manner that is worthy of what God has done. One person said it really smartly. Write this down and think about it over the course of the week. It takes a little bit of thought. He says this, Theology is grace. Ethics is gratitude. Learning about God is grace to us. How we respond to that is our gratitude to what we have learned. Theology is grace. Ethics is gratitude. So how do we how do we live in response to this gift of God? How do we walk worthy? We're going to talk about the gift at the very end, but I want to give an example. Some of you may notice that I don't wear a watch, and that's on every day, not just Sundays, okay? Uh, some of you may also go, man, if you had a watch, Jordan, we wouldn't sit in this room so long, right? You could shorten up those sermons down to about 25 minutes like you told us you were going to do instead of 31 sometimes. But say somebody decided, you know what, Jordan, you need a watch. You're about to be 35 years old, and you're supposed to wear watches once you get to that age. And they said, all right, they come up to me after church, and they've got a little box. They say, hey, I want you to take this home, and I want you to open it when you get home. It's a watch, okay? So I get home, I open the box, and it's a Rolex. <laughs> Whoa. I, I probably take a step back, right? I, I'm probably like, okay, before I'm probably even willing to put it on, I probably Google, how do you take care of a Rolex? <laughs> how do you not hurt a Rolex, right? Like, th this gift is, is so nice, and I, I would want to make sure I'm never going to mess it up. If somebody gave me the Rolex, I would be very, 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 very careful with it, and probably not even wear it that much, because I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. Now, what if the watch that I opened is a $200, $250 Apple watch? It's another really nice watch. I would like an Apple Watch. That's great. I'm not asking for anything. That was just, <laughs> Mom, if you're watching, do not get me an Apple Watch for my birthday. <laughs> All right. But I may go, wow, that's, that's a really nice gift. And, and I would want to take care of it. And I'd read the owner's manual and make sure I can charge it right and handle it right. And even though it says waterproof, I probably wouldn't go into the pool with it just to not want to risk it, right? Like we, we want to honor it and take care of it and protect it. But what if somebody gave me a $20 Timex from Walmart? Again, I'd be appreciative. Thank you for the watch. I probably wouldn't worry about it getting wet. I'd probably be willing to go play sports in it and, you know, rough house with it and all of these sort of things. I, I wouldn't get too worked up with it, but I would still be very appreciative. What if somebody had been at a gumball machine and accidentally got a $2 watch, right? And it's probably a character Mickey Mouse watch. And they give it to me and they say, here you go. Well, thank you for thinking of me, you know, and I, I, I would accept the watch. I, I may not worry about if it gets broken. I probably wouldn't replace the battery afterwards, not because I'm ungrateful, just because the value of the watch wouldn't be that valuable necessarily, and I would assume that you would know that too. Why do I use all of these examples? Because how I value something translates to how I treat something. 
And value is not just monetary. Value can be in sentimentality. I don't know if that's a word. Significance. But how we value is how we treat. And we have received a gift from God. A gift that we cannot earn. A gift that we do not deserve. A gift that we cannot buy. A gift that we cannot imagine. And yet... What we need to do, as Paul is praying here, is live in response to the value of that gift. It changes the way you treat the gift when you receive a nice gift. Now, I want to be very clear. We do not live in fear of losing the gift. But our desire is to not abuse the gift. When the person gives me the Rolex, it's not that I'm afraid that they're going to take it away that I take care of it. It's because I want to honor the value of it. We don't live in fear of God revoking the gift of His salvation from us. Fear is not the right word, but we live in fear, or I do, of abusing the great gift that God has given me. And when I understand the value of it, it changes how I treat it. All right, you're going, we've made it through a a verse and a half in 19 minutes. We are going to get you a watch now. Um, No, we're going to be really fast towards the end here. He says to walk worthy is to walk understanding the value of what God has done for you. And then he says fully pleasing to God. I love that idea, and I challenge you. I'm going to give you five days of devotions this week on the idea of pleasing God because I love this concept. I think it should be the rubric for our lives. Am I pleasing God? And you can insert in every aspect of your life. Am I pleasing God in how I pray and read the word Am I flippant in it? Am I rushed in it? Am I checking off a box? Or am I really abiding and sitting and learning and caring about this time? Am I pleasing God as a husband? Am I loving my wife as Christ loved the church? Am I honoring her? Am I revering her? Am I respecting her? Am I pleasing God in how I am as a father? Am I provoking my son or am I loving my son? Am I training him in the way he should go or am I being lazy? Am I pleasing God at work? Am I working hard in all that I do? Am I working in a way that's honorable and honest? Do I do good work or am I wasting time? Am I fudging numbers? Am I just getting by? Am I pleasing God in how I work? Am I pleasing God with my friendships? Am I pleasing God with how I use social media and who I follow, what I like, how I comment? Am I pleasing God in how I treat my neighbors or those I interact with when I'm shopping? Am I pleasing God with how I spend my money? And the one challenging for me is, am I pleasing God in how I save my money? Am I trusting Him or am I hoarding? See, we can ask that question in every aspect of our life. After a date, after a day of work, after a worship service, and after just a wild set of events, am I pleasing God? In all of these things, it puts under a microscope what you say and what you think and how you act and how you treat others. I really believe that who you seek to please determines how you live. If you want to please a boss, you're going to work your tail off. 
If you want to please your wife, every part of your life is focused on pleasing her. If you want to please your kids and for them to have a happy life, then all of your life revolves around them. If you want to please your parents, then you're still working beyond what you desire just because you want them to be proud. If you want to please the, the goals that you had 20 years ago and you're afraid you're not living up to, then you're still focused on that. Who you seek to please determines how you live. The question is, are we trying to please God in any times? Now, be careful. I didn't say, are we trying to appease God? I said, are we trying to please God? When we, we try to appease God, we're trying to make Him happy with us. We're trying to make Him love us. We're trying to make Him like us. But church, guess what? God loves you. God likes you. God sent His Son to die on the cross for you. You don't have to appease Him. But we are called to please Him. When Jesus is getting baptized, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus is being transfigured, Matthew chapter 17, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus even says in John chapter 8, it is my mission in life to please God. If that's good enough for Jesus, it's probably good enough for us. Am I pleasing God in these interactions, in these choices, in this life? All right, Paul prays that they will grow in their knowing, that they will grow in their doing, and finally they'll grow in their remembering. We've got to be quick. How does this happen? Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Church, we have to remember we cannot walk worthy and we cannot just know everything about God on our own. We must remember that it is the work of God in us and through us and all around us that brings us to this place. He says, I pray for you to have power, power that's from God, strength to do the impossible from yourself, but only because God has given you strength can you do it. He says, I pray for you to have endurance, that it means that you can handle what you normally would not handle, but because God is giving you the endurance, you can endure it. And, a, and, he, and he prays for them to have patience. This is an attitude that is not natural to us, but only something God can provide. Because you notice he adds patience with joy. Paul says, I am praying that God will work in you, that you can do things that are impossible, that are only possible because he is at work. So we must recognize the work of God and give thanks, as verse 12 says. Not patting ourselves on the back in pride, but thanking God for His goodness and His grace and His strength and His endurance and His patience. And then it says at the very end, all these things that God has given us. There's a lot of Old Testament references, but I'm going to bring to you also the New Covenant understandings. It says that God has given us an inheritance. That would have been the promised land for the people of Israel, but for us, we need to understand that is the new heavens and new earth, a place where God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. 
God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That was in Egypt in slavery, but now this is from the domain of Satan ruling over us and that the enemy has no longer won. He has transferred us into the kingdom of God. This was once the, the nation state of Israel, the people of God, but, but now he is saying, you are children of mine, that you can cry out, Abba, Father, you have access to me. You are not just slaves, but you are heirs with Christ. And he says, you have redeemed, God redeems us. The term here is of a slave being bought and set Free. Israel was set free at that Passover night, and we as believers in the work of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection have been set free from the penalty of sin, and we enjoy the freedoms that he brings. And finally, we are forgiven by God, washed, cleansed, made right. We don't need to miss that he gives us an inheritance. He delivers us. He transfers us. He redeems us. He forgives us. Paul prays for this young church seeking to know and follow Jesus, to grow in their knowledge of God's will, and to live it out. And it's kind of this spiral. Think of a thread of a screw. As you know God more, you do His will more. And as you do His will more, you know more about Him. And it keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm going to end with this analogy. Paul has said for us to walk worthy, and I, I want you to think of it this way. Wherever you are, you are on a spectrum of following God. Okay? What that means is there's more in front of you. There's more to know. There's more to do. There's more to remember. But there also means that there is something behind you too. You're somewhere on the spectrum with it. And as we do this, the goal is, doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. We're not comparing each other to the same spectrum. We're just all on a spectrum here with God, okay? And here's where you are. And here's where we want to be going. And so keep aiming forward. Keep moving forward. Keep taking steps forward. I think of it this way. I looked up on my health app this week. I don't have an Apple Watch, you know, so I just use my phone. Tell me how many steps I've taken. I'd probably have a lot more if I had an Apple Watch, but no. Once again, Mom, I'm not asking for an Apple Watch. Uh, I, I looked up, it says I have 5,000 steps a day. Okay? I did the translation, that's about 2.5 miles. Not very impressive. Over a course of a year, though, that's about 920 miles. Okay? Whenever I cross over the Texas state line when we were on I 10, it usually started in about 900, right? I don't know exact number, but the mile marker is like 900, and you're going, oh, my gosh. I'm glad I'm just going to Houston and going up, right? But I want you to think about this. If I told you every year I walk across Texas, you'd go, no, you don't. No, you don't, Jordan. <laughs> I see you. You don't. But if you thought about it, if I said, hey, I'm going to walk across Texas, you'd go, Jordan, you can't do that. Every year I walk a little over 900 miles. Now, it would be slow, laborious, and boring. But if I calculated every single day's walk, I could make it across this vast state. That's a pretty big change. From a Louisiana border to, I don't know where 10 ends up. Is it Arizona or Mexico? One of the two. Uh, or New Mexico. I was getting closer, right? <laughs> Not great. Uh, I know all the states that touch Alabama, so I got that. You can walk across that one a lot faster. Uh, but anyways, um, 
That's a long change from Lake Charles to El Paso. We're just going to say that, okay? It's a long distance. What if we had that same mentality that every day I'm focused on knowing God more, as Paul prays, at doing and pleasing God more and remembering God more? What if every day I committed to that, where would I end up a year from now? Probably wouldn't just be right here. I'd probably be a bunch of steps down the road. What if not only in one year we did that, but year after year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, where would we be in our knowing of God, in our doing for God, in our remembering of God? Holy cow, can you imagine if I was growing in that way every single day taking those steps, what change would happen So I invite you to consider, as Paul prays for the church, we started this morning saying, you typically pray for success, for health, and for happiness. What if you started praying to know God more every day? To remember Him more every day? And to live for Him more every day? Where would we end up? That's the kind of disciples we're hoping to make here. That's the kind of people I've been here for right around 16 months, and I just dream about 10 years from now where we are as people, not as a congregation. That's in God's hands. But as people, man, if we knew God more every single day, every single week, if we lived it out more every single day and every single week, what change would happen in us as individuals, in this church? And I guarantee you, it infects this community. So, Will you start praying that, thinking about that, and journeying in that way? Let's pray.